0: All right, here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. Uh, yeah, sixty-seven. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yep.
1: Here we are. This is this is awesome. This is Ollie, and this is Scott. This is science in between, and we're 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 stoked that you're here with us on this episode sixty-seven. This long journey that we've been on. Maybe <laughs> yes. Yeah. Ah, we've been on the journey. I don't know. They've been on yeah. the journey. Too. Uh, yeah, yeah. Who knows? Who knows? So, um. I guess I should set up the, the episode today just to kind of give you a, a, like where this. Well, actually, it kind of filled in with last episode. Um, if you listen to episode 66, um, which was all about like, what was that? What was 66 about again?
0: I don't know. But if if you didn't listen, you should definitely <laughs> yes. go back and you listen. Should listen to it because no, it relates. It, yeah. It, it does was, relate. Yeah. It was it about was epistemology. A, it was, yeah. like,
1: it was, you know, like what counts as knowledge, right? Yeah. Right.
0: What does it mean to and know? Yeah.
1: What it means to know, right. And so um, this this week, and I think when we talked about these two episodes, the, the catalyst of these two episodes was an experience you had in a class with your students and an experience that I had uh, serving on a panel. So I was invited to be part of a panel discussion on campus recently, which uh, a friend of mine a colleague of mine, um, she puts on a a conference, a local conference around like education and poverty. And so um, one of the keynotes a handful of years ago was – uh, Slavin, I, I want to, what's his name? First name, Richard, Robert, Rich, Richard Slavin, I think. R- Richard yeah. Slavin, who was out of Johns Hopkins, um, who was a big, um, meta-analysis guy. Like he's like, he's of, um, you know, all, of, there's a whole bunch of these guys who take a look at these, the, these huge meta-analysis, what they do is they combine research, educational research, so a whole bunch of perspectives, and then put it in like some sort of mathematical formula, and then talk about like what the evidence shows. Um, and so, they was the this person was the first keynote for this conference, and this is I think the fifth year of this conference, mm-hmm. and so um, he passed away just recently, um, and mm-hmm. so they wanted to honor his work by having this panel discussion around around his work, but more broadly also about you know evidence in education, like e- like what counts as research in education, um, right. and like what the what the evidence says about like what we should be be doing with framed all around his work right all around um Slavin's work um and so he was really instrumental in in the work with uh what works clearinghouse and if you're not familiar with that I'm sure that's going to come up like maybe once or twice uh in this episode um but the the idea was okay so you know what counts and Slavin's like a was really coming at things from like Controlled studies, quasi-experimental studies, you know, numerical quantitative studies where, you know, and, and if you've been listening to our podcast for a bit, you know, that that's not really our bent. And so I was kind of invited to this panel as as sort of like, you know, Um, I was a willing participant. I, I, I wanted to be part of the panel. I wanted to, and, but the other people on the, on the panel, like one was a cognitive researcher, right? That's like her bent, like her work is all around this stuff. And she sits on one of these IES panels, right? So she like is, so the IES is the, the folks that organize the, what we're clearinghouse and and Institute for
0: Educational it's not
1: studies, uh, let me educational,
0: uh, I, I always forget what the S stands for.
1: Yeah. Sciences.
0: Sciences. Of course. Yeah, of Institute course of sciences. Educational Sciences. Yep.
1: And so, so she sits on one of these panels that like helps to fund the the research that goes to the uh, what works clearinghouse and then I have another colleague who's you know received a, a a bunch of NSF grants to do all sorts of curriculum development and a lot of those are tied with you know hey you have to have some evidence behind what the, what you do and so there the evidence they talk about is hey you have to have randomly controlled studies you know and, and randomized controlled studies and so yeah I kind of felt like um, just as an odd addition in this. Right. And so I was trying to like, I don't know, s- steer it a little bit epistemologically from, Hey, you know, these, this, this, stuff is great. The, this, this evidence is great. However, it only tells us part of the story, right? Like there's, and so we were to draft questions beforehand. And one of the questions was like, where does qualitative work fit into all this? Like, mm-hmm. you know, are there, are there questions that quantitative work can't answer? Um and so I was doing my best to be uh you know a participant on this panel and trying to steer to other ways of knowing other ways of understanding um and I think my at one point like my uh department chair who was not participating as part of the panel but was part of the audience um I think he he like just he just went at it like I was trying to be tactful um, but he was less tactful. That's just how he rolls. All right. So he stood up and he goes, Okay, so we have all these controlled studies that um, you folks have either celebrated or been part of yeah. um, and have told us about, like, you know, here are the things that should be happening. These are the things that we know about, you know, a different, you know, instructional interventions and things that we could do with students. Um, but then we just had this global pandemic, and this global pandemic is not. A control that we can control. It basically mm-hmm. threw all the work out the window. Um, doesn't that show us something about the need for this kind of work and what other kind of work we need? And, yeah. uh, and, It kind of put people on on their heels a little bit, um, which is not really what I like. I was trying to be a little more tactful, but he was Mm -hmm. just like went at it. I think there's a video of this thing floating around where I I participated from, you know, virtually. But I think that really sets up this conversation. You know, and I I started I'm sorry for being long winded, but I think that that backstory is important uh, because, you know, there is this perspective uh, that if we participate if we have these you know controlled studies we have these quasi experimental studies that, that those things are like some of the gold standards and they even have it on the, what we're clearing is like tiers of research. Like, you yep. know, and if you do like anything qualitative, like that the only qualitative work that they appreciate there is case study. Mm-hmm. Like that's it. The case study is the only thing. And they don't even tier that they, they go, they don't go tier one, tier two. It's, tier. A different they category. Say, it's just a different category. And we also yeah. have these case studies over here. I and it's Brad. just like, yeah. So I thought that it would be really good for us to, you know, this frames it, but I think it would be good for us to unpack this and, you know, talk about like what, what value the, what value that stuff has, you know, these are meta, meta analyses and these, you know, randomly controlled studies and all that. Um, but what, what value does all of this have to, you know, the, 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 the boots on the ground teacher, right. And also to the larger field.
0: Yeah. And I think um, one thing that I've always thought about with, with regard to this is, you um, you know we we have a unique perspective in the sense that our backgrounds are in science right so we're we are in the we, our background is in the field uh, upon which many of these folks are sort of building their methodologies right like right. The, the The idea of an experimental methodology mm-hmm. is very much from the natural sciences imported from the natural sciences this idea of like well the the world is complicated but it's we can categorize things easily and um as a result that that ends up with uh being able to to compare one group of things to another group of things in a way that helps us understand the differences and those those differences that then can be um, you know made important and and uh, and help us understand the world better. So so that fundamental sort of notion from the well Francis Bacon or whatever from the f- you know 1500s of the beginning of, of quote unquote the scientific method. Like we've talked a lot about the scientific method, um, in terms of its relationship to practices. But but now we're taking a little bit of a different tack, which is like, well, how do these how do these investigatory practices. Move into a field, an applied field about human behavior that's something like education. So, um, and I think it's worth also differentiating um, education as an applied field from educational psychology and psychology, which are their own thing. and, you know, we've talked a lot about those differences and, and about educational psychology and, you know, that w- last week we were talking about, um, you know, all you need to know about the history of education is that Thorndike won and Dewey lost, right? You know, so that, that returns to the, that site. was the
1: takeaway. That was yeah. the big takeaway, right?
0: That was the big takeaway. So, um, and thanks to my, my colleague, uh, Francesca Lopez for that, but, um, but, that that idea um, really is at the heart of this question of the What Works Clearinghouse, like the idea that there's a group of folks who are going to decide what evidence counts and what doesn't, and, and to some extent that always happens um, in science, but, um, but that those folks were deeply, if not exclusively, uh, influenced by notions of educational psychology as the foundational way to think about education and and that's Thorndike's legacy right right well i think that the thing that
1: they where i think that the misstep happens is that that we can control the all of the factors that influence learning that to me is i think the misstep is that you know whenever you're looking at i don't know like um you know, the impacts of a drug on somebody, right? Like you say you're doing a medical trial. Um, I think some of those factors are a little bit more controllable. Um, I just don't, th- I don't think they're completely controllable, but I think that the the mistake that we make in education is that, okay, if we have enough people that participate in some sort of study and we kind of do some sort of random control or something, you know, you know, a control and experimental group, you know, and we randomly put them in the different groups and somehow by just ignoring the factors and doing and all the backgrounds and all the influences that can affect learning and just have, you know, these big groups that somehow, you know, we've accounted for it. Right. And I I know I'm oversimplifying it, but I think that. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I, I know I'm oversimplifying it, but in the same sense, I, I go, well, you know, there's so many things that influence learning from you know, any, any principal out there who who may be listening to this who has ever tried to plan the PS their test, this like state testing, right? And 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 Pennsylvania's a PSA, PSS PSSAs, you know, if it like it's like, do we schedule them in the morning? Do we schedule them in the afternoon? Do we schedule them and have snacks? Do we do like all of those things are are ways that they're like, hmm, these are all the things like that m- m- could impact the scores on these tests. And so the teachers are like like teachers and administrators are going, we need to be really thoughtful about this because and intentional with when we plan this, because you know, just scheduling it like an hour or two later in the morning may have, you know, a a factor may have a significant impact on the, on the score. At least that's the perception. Right. Right. And so if, if it's something as simple as that, you know, then, then there's so many uncontrollable factors and not even on the scale of a global pandemic, just in the factor of like, okay, did, you know, did parents read to the kids when they were like in, you know, you know, when they were three years old, you Mm -hmm. know, something like that, you know, which is a huge impact on, on, on a huge influence on learning um and so it's like how do we take all of those facts like there are an infinite number of factors that influence learning right and and that that is the a hard part for me to to get around to square that circle
0: right yeah and i mean it's interesting that you used a piece of evidence from a um from uh an experiment well it's not an experimental but a quantitative study right this idea of reading to your kids makes a huge difference in in their in their um educational outcomes right i mean that but i think to to look at that as an outcome uh, for a second and think about like i agree with everything you said about like one of the clear challenges of doing experimental work in education is is the complexity of the environments you're comparing, right? And right. so um that means the only way to overcome that, of course, is large numbers, right? And that's and that's what they try to do. They try to do massive scale studies. But the problem with that is then you you've really just introduced more complexity, right. not reduced exactly the complexity. Right. And so so that that's that's troublesome. And then and I think the other side for me is this. Um, what what you get as a result of uh, and findings from these large scale studies tend to be sort of like what you described there, right? Which is for me almost like a horoscope, right? It's like, well, you you know, you should read your kids more, okay? Well, I, I mean, that I don't disagree with that, I think that's a valid finding, but but. What does that really help me do yeah. in terms of fine grained detail of 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 guiding our educational system, right? You know, it's like um, locally here we there's been some interest in the work of John Hattie, who's another one of these yeah. people who does uh, like big visible meta. learning.
1: Yeah. yeah, but there's a battle between Slavin and Hattie. They are like they right. see the world right. very differently. So you would think that they're like in the same vein that like they would be best friends, but that is not yeah. the case. Well, they're I mean, I methodologically
0: about- in the same. Right, Camp. right.
1: But I, th- I think uh, S- Slavin sees that Hattie uh, is a little free and loose with how he yeah. does his meta analysis. He just throws everything in, right? W- well, without, he like,
0: and he's a feedback researcher, right? So, right. so that puts him probably a little closer to the to the actual sort of classroom environment, right? Cause it, 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 cause what he studies is feedback, which has to happen between a teacher and a student on some yeah. sort of individual level. But, you know, like his big finding is like, teachers make a difference. It's like, okay, wow. like yeah. fantastic. I totally agree. And yet that helps me with almost nothing. And in, in fact, it helps me with nothing. It's worse than nothing. Right. To say like teachers make a difference. It's like, well, okay, they do. I agree. Um, but but that's not the kind of work that we need to help us improve educational practice. Like the that's, you know, that's for me is the, you know, the, and and the other piece of that is, is these, the outcomes make recommendations, you know, not just horoscope like broad, but also blanket, which is to say like all kids of X category, whatever that category is should be treated in Y way. And it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense either. Right. That, yeah. you know, more, you know, you could say like, okay, we, we have a study that finds that more um, people of color are identified in special education. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So does that mean kids, sh- people of color should not be identified? It, they should right. be like, what, like, is that, is that a racist practice? And, uh, You know, is that an anti-racist practice? Like just knowing that more of them identified, like, I don't know what, what that helps us do. Right. It's sort of like, okay, fine. Like, yeah, but if you want to know whether it's a racist practice or it's an anti-racist practice, you have to look at it in the practice. You have to go and see what's happening. Like, is this a case of kids who are, who are capable, but not culturally aligned with the school district are being characterized as special education. Well, that's a problem. But if these are kids that need support, maybe, maybe it's not a problem, but, but that gets down another road and we're not going to go there, but anyway, so that's, that's my, uh, yeah. I mean, I think there, there are many struggles with this idea of like characterizing education from a quantitative perspective.
1: Well, I think the, the other part to me that, that is the struggle with this is when this is held up, held up as the, the gold standard in educational resource research, it just takes all the air out of the room of all the other types of ways of knowing right all the other things that could be valuable you know perspectives on on learning and Mm -hmm. so and i think it does come back to the Thorndike dewey thing right is that um you know that it it presents it as okay this is this is how we know about stuff. And, and, but then the individual teacher looks at this and goes, okay, so, you know, if I look at the visible learning website, I can see, okay, because like he, on the, the visible learning website, if you go there, right, just Google it, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, they'll, how uh, ranks all of these teacher influences, all of these instructional practices, all of these backgrounds of students, and you can rank them, and he ranks them based on impact factor. And he has this like sort of like uh 0. 0.7 as the, you know, that's, that's the, 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 the gold the standard, that's the zone. We want to get them in. Right. If it has an impact factor of 0. 0.7 or above, then it's something we should be doing. If it's 0. 0.7 or lower, then it's like, eh, we don't really know. You know, and it's like, it can go either way. You know, 0. 0.7 is really highly impactful stuff. But if you look at the list and you're just like, okay, like, like, formative assessment in terms of instructional practices and feedback for for teachers are at the top of that. And I'm like, yeah, I could buy in that. All right. Rock and roll. You know? Right. Okay. But what does that mean I have to do? Should I, should I yeah. like, how often should I do feedback? How often should I do a formative assessment? Like these are the what, these what are, kinds of formative what kinds, right. You know, cause it's like, and, and that's the part where I think, and is there different types of formative assessments I should use for different content areas and for different grade levels of students and all those are, it's just, presents me with more questions. Right. You know? And to me, that is where qualitative work comes in. Right. Yeah. That's the part where like the and
0: yeah. And well it it's sucks. be it's beyond that, right? In the in the sense that so so methodologically for for these quantitative studies or meta analyses to to be truly evidence Um, you have to make the assumption that all people in all of those studies defined formative assessment essentially in the same way, right? Because otherwise formative assessment is not a, is not a consistent variable in all these studies. So, so it's like, okay, now we have a problem, right? Because, you know, and this, this brings up for me that, um, uh, there's a guy, Paul Kirshner who does, who's a cognitive psychologist who who we just read one of his studies one of his student studies actually i think in um in my class that was about there's a there basically the argument of the study was there's lots of evidence from their point of view that inquiry based methodologies do not work and direct instruction is a much better approach to teaching science and all of that all of that um evidence is being ignored by by the people who are doing policy work in science education so that 's what that was the argument of the of the study but of course they sort of their categories are basically direct instruction and everything else right. um, and everything else covers a lot of territory and they call it even in the article they call these things by lots of different names like oh it 's inquiry based pedagogy it's project based pedagogy it 's you know, whatever. It's all these different things. And it's like, well, okay. So you're comparing a relatively clearly defined pedagogy and even direct instruction, not super clearly defined, lots of argument about what counts and doesn't. Um, And then everything else, which really covers a lot of territory from like wide open, whatever open discovery looks like if it even exists all the way through to highly guided scripted quote unquote, inquiry instruction, like all those things are together. And you're saying, well, those things as a package don't work. It's like, what, what does that even mean to say that? It's just puzzling to me.
1: I, do, I just want to correct something. I just said about okay. point se- point seven. No on oh, it's, it's, it's a not a different number. Seven. It's a different number. It's point 0.4. Okay. So oh, I pulled it up on the visible. I know I feel I so much better. I know, um, but here this I'll I'll read from the Visible Learning site because this will make you much more uh, comfortable with where the point 0.4 comes from. Uh huh. Hattie Fair found well. that the average effect size of all the interventions he studied was 0.4. Oh,
0: so so if it's therefore, about 0.4, he it's just,
1: therefore <laughs> he decided to judge the success of influences relative to this hinge point in order to find an answer to the it question. called hinge point. Hinge point. So not point an four, average. So if it was <laughs> above point four, It's not an it,
0: average. It's, it's not, not average. just that those things are above average. It's that right. they're above a hinge point at which right. they become actually impactful.
1: So the hinge point. Hinge which, point. Which hinge point. There you
0: yeah. go. That, well, word. coming back
1: to your hinge argument point. with Hattie, that's yeah. exactly Slavin's criticism yeah. of, of Hattie's work is that they don't. Like it just puts it all into like a yeah. big Sasha's grinder, and then out comes this meta-analysis point four above. Yay, less than point four. Yeah. You know, boo. And yeah, boo. Not impactful. Um, but the, that <clears> that you know, I I think that was a pretty big criticism of Hattie's work. And now Hattie, you know, there's a bunch of books like Visible Learning is yeah. like its own industry. For you sure, know, you could um and we have actually read some of his stuff and led reading groups on campus more so from the standpoint of trying to get folks to like consider other types of instruction beyond lecture yeah right? so it was more you know with a so when I was leading the um the professional development teaching and learning center on campus, you know, I work with a lot of scientists. A lot of people who have you know hardcore science background, yeah. and they don't have an appreciation for educational research in general, right? Um, I don't want to say they're like they poo poo it. <laughs> some of oh, them do. Some, uh, do. some of them do. But <laughs> um they uh, they see uh a value in lecture based instruction. Um even though the research shows something very different than that. Yeah. And so this this that kind of work, this visible learning stuff really resonates with them because they see it as as being more valid work. And so it was an entry point for me to be able to discuss um other practices, other student centered practices that could impact learning more than lecture based instruction. But you know, even that had, you know, didn't have a whole lot of impact in, you know, moving those groups, you know,
0: no. Well, and and we know because this is what we do, right? <clears throat> that that's that's exactly the problem, right? This idea that this evidence is going to convincingly change the mind of somebody whose practice is already a particular way, like it's it's highly unlikely. Like the work of changing practice is is Hard. deep difficult long-term work. It's not yeah. like I'm going to come in and tell teachers about visible learning and now suddenly they're going to be a whole different kind of teacher. Like that's not how that works. Like it, you know, human behavior is 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 uh grooved in, right? Like we build patterns of behavior over long periods of time. We've talked about the apprenticeship of observation, which is yeah. which is this idea that you learn you learn what good teaching Is by sitting in classrooms and whether that's good teaching or not is irrelevant. That's you see that as this is what teachers do and you see that for at the very least 13 years and for many of us 17 plus years. Um, where basically the vast majority of what you see is the teacher talking to you and you're writing stuff down. So, so your definition of good teaching is mostly about like, well, I really like that guy, Mr. Dreon. He was he was super cool, and I liked his class because it was fun. It's like, okay, you know, a few students enough. are saying
1: that. Few few, well,
0: I, I found two of them there, <laughs> so I I have two. Yeah, two, <laughs> it's a case study of two, um, n of two. Um, so yeah, but I mean that, you know, it, it's, it's, um, that, that's your baseline for what it means to teach. And when you go in to a school as a teacher, whether you're a pre-service teacher or a new in-service teacher, there's a culture in that yeah. school and, and teachers teach the way they do. Um, and it's very difficult to swim upstream against that, especially as a novice. So pretty soon you're enculturated into the practices of your school and you're doing what the folks around you are doing. Um, and that's not to say that those people are weak-willed or terrible people or whatever it is. Like, it's just like, this is human nature. Like we, we are, um, we are <laughs> tribal creatures. We are community creatures and we, we are influenced by our peers and colleagues and, uh, and by a long history of doing these practices. So, so that sounds like what, my
1: dissertation right there. Exactly. Like, yeah, that's exactly. It, what it sounds it, like
0: it, it is. And it, and it's, And it's lots of other research in the field, right? So that's part of the point too, is that there's lots of, there is other ways, there are other ways to think about evidence um, other than the idea that we're doing some sort of comparison. And if you're not making a comparison, I mean, the fundamental uh, principle that underlies all this work that we're talking about is if you can't make a comparison to some other group, then what you're finding is not useful, because right. it or doesn't suspect. tell us that, yeah, it doesn't tell us compared to that group, is this group actually doing better? Is your intervention better than the status quo? And if you can't prove that, then um then it has limited value. We don't know anything about your intervention except that it works it works to the degree that it works, right? But we don't know compared to something else, how does it work, and that yeah, fundamental so the, principles what, is underlying all this.
1: Yeah. So one of the criticisms that they that uh the folks make of qualitative work is that the generalizability. Like what can we right. how can we generalize this to a larger population if it's just you know these, you know, a case study of two people or fun, worst a phenomenological study of two people, oh, right? Uh, I know. Worse. I know. And so if you have like these like really in-depth qualitative studies that look at you know lived experiences of of teachers or of anybody over you know a period of time like how does that generalize to you know the broader population and and the the idea is that okay maybe it doesn't have to generalize to but can we learn something from the experience that may be applicable or may be something that we can translate to another experience because some of these lived experiences are similar, but some of them were different. Right. And, and so I think that's the, the, the light that it can shed on these broader problems of practice, problems of culture, problems Mm -hmm. of, you know, uh, uh, these are all like, it's, it's again, that multitude of factors that we cannot, Control for, but we right. can understand them. If we yep. better understand them, you know, then I think that that's that's the the gold. That's right. where the gold standard is for me. It's yeah. like trying to understand some of those, you know, because the reality is that it, it, in this, I think we've mentioned this before, but like teachers make thousands of decisions every day, thousands of instructional decisions every day, mm-hmm. and we have to help them, help arm them to to know what the good decisions are, what the bad decisions are. You know, and sometimes they're not like that black and white, right? Because almost always. Right. And and, you know, some, you know, hinge point of point four isn't gonna help them do that.
0: No. Right? Well, I mean, I think you can, <clears throat> you know, not to to get to uh, meta here but you could do that you could think about this as a sort of case study right so if we were doing if we we're trying to compare quantitative and qualitative methodologies and let's say we wanted to figure out like whether ollie was a better teacher or i was a better teacher right so we're going to look at our classes and and we're going to decide whether ollie is better than me i don't know you know we're going to define some criteria about that or whatever, right? So, sure. a quantitative methodology, we just look and see. Well, who did better on the tests, or we have some other metrics. We give them a, um, an attitude and belief uh, sure. measure, or we give them, you know, whatever we want to do. Like, but but we compare and and say, okay, well, definitively, Ollie's the better teacher because all of his kids score better on the exams than than Scott's kids. Okay. So fair enough. So let's now let's think about that in a real context, in a real school, and think about what the possible explanations for the differences between my my kids doing less well than Ollie's kids. And there's a myriad of them, right? Like we can think of a million reasons. Well, maybe all my class sizes are bigger. Um, maybe Ollie's classes are in the morning when kids are are more, more or less alert. Maybe it's minor in the morning and they're less alert. It's in high school, right? Or, you know who knows like there 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 are so many factors that could explain that difference but what you're what you're doing is deciding a priori that because the thing that you're trying to differentiate which is the teacher um yeah. is the thing that you want to compare that all that other stuff just washes out right not like, understanding not that the, it doesn't
1: like one of the factors we controlled was like you and i are similarly aged white men right similar with and, similar
0: backgrounds with similar
1: backgrounds right Let's let's throw in, you know, a, a female teacher. Let's throw in a right. female teacher of color. Right. right. I mean, that's the like talk to any you know, college professor about student evaluations. And this is the, the rabbit hole that you go down is that, you know, student evaluations are overwhelmingly unreliable measures of teacher quality. Right. You know, unreliable is probably the nicest way I, can I was going right? to say, very <laughs> generously described, right? I mean, it's the nicest way I can <laughs> known say to be mo-
0: deeply problematic. And first,
1: for like, especially like, for you know, uh, folks who, who uh, English isn't their native language, right? Yeah. Or, um, you know, female professors or professors of color or yeah. female professors of color are like, yeah, the like it's just like come on and we know and we know them and we continue to use them as measures of teacher quality yep. especially for you know probationary faculty yep. and and we just go okay we're just the, like ignore all of that yeah right but well, then it, um, yeah, the, the same people who would say hey student evaluations that these are unreliable measures are the people who are like going hey we, we got to go to the visible learning yep. you know and it's like, we, in one sense, we recognize all the multitude of factors, but in the other part, we just go, yeah, let's, 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 let's put it in that sausage machine, make some sausage and it's delicious.
0: Right. Well, and I think, yeah, it is delicious. Um, but I, but I think, you know, fundamentally these, these, um, these patterns that of using, of relying on numerical quote unquote data. As being more objective than non numerical data, I mean a part of this slides all the way back into again k twelve classrooms and and becomes an issue of like the reality, right, which is why do so many teachers give multiple choice exams it 's not because they necessarily think multiple choice exams are great measures of their kids understanding because most many teachers don 't believe that some do. Yeah. But most say, "Look, I don't have a choice. I have one hundred and fifty kids, and if I did individual interviews with one hundred and fifty kids, like that's yeah. two weeks of curriculum. I can't teach for two weeks because I'm doing all this interviewing, um, and I might better understand how they how they understood the last unit but but I won't be able to teach the next unit. so there are some realities here, and I think the other thing is that you know." People like talking points, right? And particularly politicians and policymakers like talking points. They like easy solutions. They like things that they can point at and say, if you do this, you're going to completely change your school. If you reduce class size, if you do, you know, if you get highly qualified teachers, if you, you know, whatever it is, like some little silver bullet, um, and and quantitative comparative studies allow you to make those kinds of claims, even though um, they're fundamentally unsound when it comes to how they actually work in practice. So you can say like, okay, well, you know, all the evidence says that class size doesn't matter and we don't need, you know, reducing class size doesn't actually help kids learn. So now policymakers can say, well, yeah, it doesn't matter. So we don't have to worry about that.
1: That's the danger. That is the danger
0: but it, and it cuts both ways. I mean, this is the thing like quantitative, like these sort of those sorts of measures lead to the kinds of claims that are broad and they would describe general as generalizable, um, broad, but, um, in, in the practicalities of the day to day actually can be extremely damaging. If you just follow them because they don't take into account the local context and the local variability and, and, And frankly, they don't take into account individual children, much less individual teachers. So it's, you know, it's just, but but the problem is they're easy, right? You know, to your point, it's like SRTEs are still in place because they're easy. Like if you want to find out if a class is good or not. Well, you just ask the students to rank it from one to five on a Likert scale, and then whatever that is counts, you know, because we're doing it in every other class, so it must be a meaningful number that tells me something about how good this class is, right? And so now we can compare. Now we can say, well, Holly's class was a was a four point seven out of five, and Scott's was a four point six five out of five, so and therefore, clearly, uh,
1: I, clearly, I'm a better teacher. That clearly,
0: means. he's a better teacher, and I, you right. know, how do you argue with it? It's it's the numbers are right there in front of you.
1: Well, and 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 i think any any person who's worked in in an in a, uh, a school or an institution in which those are valued they know how to game them right sure. i mean they know how to game them you know just like bringing you know cookies in on the day of the, the
0: srte the, day the, yeah <laughs> and,
1: and and you know hmm, that's that's going to have an impact and you know it yeah it it's such a i guess i'll, I'll let me circle back so what value do these you know hattie slaven you know big randomly controlled studies what what do they what value does it have like does it
0: like yeah well i mean i think so if i don't know the party line on that i guess whatever the party is um so the general sort of consensus of people outside of the people who do that research is well, they can point to potentially interesting areas to be investigated, but you know, again, on uh, you know, it's sort of like Patty's work. Like, okay, so formative assessments important. Yeah. All right. Well, there's a lot of work that is not quantitative. Work on formative assessment. That's high-quality work investigating how teachers use formative assessment in various contexts, how it does or does not support student learning in in various ways, right? So, so Hattie's Hattie's study saying that formative assessment is above average in terms of its impact on classroom learning. You know, I, I mean it sort of is confirming something that we already know and frankly already have start, have been investigating for a long time. I mean, there's lots of good books about how to do formative assessment. Yeah. So, so what, what besides that, does it really tell us? Um, and how often does it actually tell us that in, in meaningful ways, again, going back to some of these like um, gross generalizations about, different kinds of pedagogy and lumping them together. And what, what does that do in terms of our ability to even know what might or might not be interesting?
1: Yeah. I I think where I'm going to be generous here. Um, Good. I think that, so I'm I'm sure you've been fishing, right? Like, you know, you ever go, you ever go fishing where they have the, the the little fish finder. And so you're, you're on a boat and you're out there. And I think that I kind of liken these big, huge, you know, Hattie Slavin meta analysis, you know, randomly controlled studies, all of these things as, as the fish finder, right? Like it helps us maybe find some fish and then, but the thing is, is that you still got to know how to catch them. Right. And that's, I think where, where the qualitative work comes in is that it may give us a, a broader scope of the overall field and maybe help us see i mean there's still fish to be found in other places that are probably aren't going to come up on the fish finder mm-hmm. but if you're really going to try to find and i'm seeing the fish is like the impactful strategies that we can do that can really positively impact student learning that you know maybe it gives us the a broader perspective and help us hone in on where but i think that you know the work of actually casting the net and you know I think that's where the qualitative work comes in because that's the valuable stuff to me is that if I can get a better understanding of the strategies to impact specific students, understanding the overall you know, factors, better understanding those factors, I think that's where the value lies. And so I don't know if that's a meaningful metaphor or not, but it helps me.
0: Yeah. I mean, and, and me being the less generous, usually of the two of us, (laughs) um, I would take your metaphor and say, so what quantitative studies for me do is say, Hey, there's a lot of fish in the ocean um, and there's different kinds of fish. There's big fish and there's little fish and uh, isn't that interesting. And I would say, I guess, I mean, it's nice to know there are fish in the ocean. um, But if I want to know how to catch tuna, That's a lot different than wanting than knowing how to catch um, trout, right? Those are both fish, and you can catch them both, but you can't catch them the same way, and you can't, you know. I mean, and and what you get afterwards is very different. Like a tuna is a very different thing when you pull it out. Um than a then a trout. And we've talked about the fish don't exist, right? As a category. Yes, it's a taxonomic it category. Yeah. So so good choice too, because there aren't yeah, even fish, man. There Come aren't on. even fish. Fish don't even there's, exist. There's no such thing as a fish. So um so anyway. I
1: I I will say that I, as as you were talking there, I just was scrolling through the Hattie factors yeah. and the uh the impact factor for mm. reducing class size. Yeah.
0: It's below, below average.
1: It's below 0. 0.4. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. big cl- and some some administrator out there is like, "Well, crank up the class size." And yeah. any teacher knows, any teacher who's listening out there knows that teaching a class of 15 is very different than teaching a class of 30. You know it. You yeah. know? You know it. And you know that what you can the types of pro- the things you can plan for your students, the way you know those students, the way that you interact with them, the types of feedback you give, all of that is different. Right. Because of the, 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 the number of students in the room yet they, the research doesn't show that.
0: Right. So maybe this takes this all the way back to something that we, that's one of our sort of repeated saws on this show that we talk but, about a lot, which is teaching is a relational activity it uh, yeah, it, yeah. and, and relationships are not well summed up with, with quantitative data. Like you know, it's like okay, I'm going to decide who's, a, a, you know, whether I'm a better husband than Ali um, by what I'm going to examine. How many gifts that yeah. that we each got our wives over the last year, or the amount of dollars we spent on those gifts, or you know, how many hugs we gave them. I mean, you know, it's like really, is this how you want to think about relationships? Is is reducing them to that? And it and you know, it also encourages us to think of. Teaching as a transmission activity rather than a relational activity, because it's like, well, all we need is for the for the kids to have more knowledge. We just need to have them have more knowledge. And that means success, even if they leave school miserable and hating it and don't remember any of the things that they learned, um, at least in the short term, they've they've memorized these things and therefore they're successful. It's like, wow, we are just losing the thread here of what school should be about.
1: I will say uh, at near the top of the list, this is, let me count. Uh,
0: is it higher than teachers?
1: Oh, it is. Oh, well, it's like it's, students. A, it's in the top 10, Okay, top 10 for, uh, and this is in general, the general influence of factors <sighs> related to student achievement. I think number eight, conceptual change programs.
0: Oh, there you go. Impact right. factor of
1: 0.99. Wow so you you, scott have been teaching science education incorrectly for there you go yeah that's a good note if only i'd known about conceptual change
0: (laughs) hey thanks for tuning in could have solved (laughs) all this a long time ago fantastic next time (laughs) point nine nine what does he mean by conceptual change i don't know i don't know you know pedagogies (laughs) that involve changing kids concepts concepts right okay (laughs) piss off now john All right. Well, Uh, on that note,
1: (laughs) let's find some joys.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I can go first this time. Sure. Go ahead. Um, So, uh, so this is a nerdy one, but I I have to say, I just found this out this week um, and, and it has, it has changed my game in a way that I did not expect it to so this but this is a, a, a Mac specific Ollie and I are Mac nerds, i think uh, but but um, for those of you in the audience who didn't know that um, but uh and i'm I've been an Apple fanboy for a long time, but um i will so here's the thing that I just uh, sort of am making, starting to make good use of that I knew existed but have never really tried out, which is tab groups uh in Safari. So this is uh, it seems incredibly uh stupid and trivial but it is po- incredibly powerful. So basically to I'll give you an example of how I use it for example for this podcast. So um so there is this thing called tab groups in Safari and it creates a menu at the top. Um, that gives you a whole selection of things that you can do, or you can just open up on the side and create an, uh, a sidebar and and create new tab groups out of a set of tabs. So let's say when I'm preparing for the podcast, uh, and this question has been asked before, we do hours and hours of preparation for this podcast. Hours. So hours. Um but one of the things I do do is I open a Safari window and I open a set of tabs. So one of the tabs is the folder where all our um, audio files go into in Google Drive. And one is um, the metrics for the show. And one is the list of episodes. And then one is the new episode for for today. <clears throat> and then sometimes if I've got research or other things I have those tabs open. But that core set of tabs I open every time. So what I can do now is I can open those tabs and I can go to tab groups and say make a tab group and it creates a tab group and then when I'm when I'm ready to do the podcast I open a new window and just select science in between off of my tab groups list and it opens all those tabs for me. Oh that's cool. And it it sounds stupid but it's amazing cuz now i can have one i have one for like oh for my graduate class so that opens like canvas it opens the blog that my students post in it opens all these <clears throat> tabs and th- and then each window has its own little uh pr- bespoke purpose that's built on these tabs and uh and it's it and it, it i found it to be really powerful and so uh so i recommend tab groups
1: Tab groups, nice. Check it out it's in, in Safari. Tab groups. Look it's at in that. Safari,
0: so you know it is Mac based and it is that sure. particular browser. But still,
1: so I'm going to go a little different direction. We're recording this right after uh the holidays, after mm-hmm. Thanksgiving, and so uh last week was I got to spend some time with some family and friends. And for for me, one of my favorite parts of the holidays, and just my favorite parts parts of. Uh, interacting with with family in general is is game playing and mm. i love games i love we're big game players in our, our house we spent most of the pandemic uh playing games we have a whole book of of the games we played like and who won what and oh, and, oh yeah it was oh. it was great because we kept track you know and it's it's an evidence-based uh, game evidence-based thing <laughs> so uh you know so over over the the holiday break well you know we played some scrabble we played some five crowns we played some quirkle if you don't know those game of course you know scrabble but yeah. I mean, five crowns is a great card game quirkle was one a joy uh at at some point over the last year or so it was um, five second rule. I, I don't know if you're familiar with this five second rule game. Yeah.
0: I mean, I know, but, I know what the five second rule is, but,
1: but no, there's a game called five second rule, which is not like, Hey, you, you drop something on the ground. You got five <laughs> seconds to pick it up. No, this is, uh, it's, so what is this? A card of topics, you know, a box of, of, of topics. So you get a, a, a card that says like name three teams in the big 10. And then you have five seconds. So you flip this little thing and these little things spin down and you get five seconds to name three things. And it sounds pretty simple, but the stress of hearing this (laughs) and it makes a sound when you flip it. Of course it it
0: does.
1: And then it's like. (laughs) And it's like, uh, uh, ah, so it's like the panic of trying to come up with something. And sometimes it's like really simple, like name three vegetables. Sometimes it's like name three things that are white, you know, and so this whole group, the whole, like if you're playing with a group of people, it's really fun because you get to pass it from person to person. Um, name three prime numbers. Uh, oh, you know, look uh, at you. I know it was, it, that was a question. And my, my brother-in-law, he was, he started with that and he said one, three, five. And I went, no, nope. no, no, it is not prime. And he's like, what are you talking about? I go, one, my friend is not, not a prime, prime number. number. And, number. and then this actually came up in conversation, you know, in in the gameplay, it came up. That was a question. I was like, I'm here for it. And, and I, <laughs> so what happens if the person can't do it, then it moves to the next person. This is at least how we we're playing. There's multiple ways of playing, yeah. but this is the way we we're playing. Um, and so it moves to the next person and they have to do three that don't have, they get again, five It can't seconds. be
0: the same three it can't for be any the of the three, same three, three.
1: Yeah, yeah. any of the same ones. So the next person, so it ultimately I was like a good five people away. Cause there's a whole group of us that were playing and I stole that card by naming some prime numbers. I did not, baby. however, say 67 in that process, oh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you worked it in Look at you, I I knew you would. I knew you would.
1: There it is. So Uh, there's my joy of the week. Five second roll. (laughs) I think your joy
0: of the week was working 67 into your joy of the week. If we're being honest.
1: Uh, I I don't even know what you're talking about, Scott. (laughs) I'm
0: oblivious. (laughs) Uh,
1: Five second roll. It's a great game to play with, with kids. um, Especially uh, like younger kids, because like they're, you know, there's some cards that you could like pass because maybe the kids don't know, um, sure. but they can name three trees, they can name three you know fruits, they can name you know there's so many things that they can participate with that I think you know, just being a little mindful of the cards, so if you have little kids, you can play with this, it's just a blast of a game, and you can play with a bunch of people, and I just love games. I just love games, you know so yeah, go out nice. there, five second roll by for right. your.: Yeah.
0: Name three and, female presidents.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh oh oh, 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 yeah. Name, uh, name three presidents of color. Uh, yeah. uh, uh,
1: uh, 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 are we saying uh, 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 U.S. presidents? Just, <laughs> you didn't say
0: it's <laughs> a good point. Uh, uh, winner.
1: Uh, yes. Well, that's what I did. Like there was one that said uh, name three sharks. And I went uh, I said hammerhead land shark. <laughs> and then I said card, <laughs> the, the group did not give it to me. They did no. not. I'm like, it doesn't say, well, it's, it's defined. Like, you know, we've, we've had, we've sure had the it's...
0: card shark, card sharp conversation. Right? Uh, I feel like we've had no. Oh yeah.
1: It, it, it's definitely card shark. You're a card um,
0: shark. All I'm going to say is check the internet. It's I'm not saying card shark isn't in there, but card sharp, I think is the origin. And then it got changed to card shark.
1: Oh, I just did card shark. And the number one thing that came up was card, card sharp, sharp on Wikipedia. Oh, my gosh. My world just changed right Thank there. You. I was today years old. when I <laughs>
0: today learned. years old. What is that? That's a thing. Today <laughs> it, it, years is old. A, it, it is a thing. Oh, All right. It's like card hey, sharps. Well, <laughs> yes.
1: What the heck is a card sharp? Also, also card sharp, card shark or card shark. Hyphenated, sometimes not hyphenated, sometimes yeah. two words, sometimes one word. Mind blown, Scott. You continue yeah. to educate me. Thank I you. am yes. And this wow. is further
0: evidence why uh, quantitative research is is uh, less useful, right? Because <laughs> what's the difference between a card sharp and a card shark? Put them are we, all. Are they the same together? You just put them a, in together.
1: It's all just throw it into the meta-analysis. Just it's good card
0: same. players. We'll just call yeah. them good card players yeah. versus bad card players
1: i am blown away by that oh
0: you can tell your family and friends now that you were not just wrong you were so wrong you were wrong
1: i was really wrong all right well there you go lessons to be learned how can we end
0: better than that
1: we can't hey well thanks for being here catch you next time in between see you then bye now